the good news is that we serve a God who enters in to our fragility, enters into the fragile place. We are fragile. But listen to Philippians 2 and the good news. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Come, Holy Spirit, lead us again. I pray these words of mine wouldn't be my words, but they'd be your words and Come and meet each of us if we are in happiness, if we are in grief, if we are in sadness, if we are in fear, if we are tired. Provide, Lord, and come and fill us and meet us and bless us and shape this proclamation by the power of your Holy Spirit. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I once got one of these great questions from a young adult years ago, a very impressive theater major from UW. A deep Christian who married a deep Christian, great couple, and they asked me this profound question, and it went like this. When is God going to do something? When is God going to do something? It's a good question. And our text answers it today. And the answer comes in the form of a hymn, a song. The heart of this text, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is known as the Christ hymn. It's actually thought by scholars that it may have, one scholar suggested it may have been a hymn sung when early Christians were celebrating the Lord's Supper. But before we get to that, let's start at the end of the passage. This is Covey, Stephen Covey. Let's begin with the end in mind. Is that Covey? I think it is. From the seven habits. Here's how it ends. In a nutshell. In our passage. Here's where this goes. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is God's answer to regime change. This is about regime change. It is we as a humanity. Who've been trying to change regimes. Since the beginning. Since Genesis. We've been in a tug of war. With God over who's in charge. Trying to overthrow God's regime and put ourselves in that seat. The story is ongoing. It's unfolding. 
and we're assured, though, of how it ends and what reality currently is, whatever we want to make it. This all ends with humanity on its knees. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how does God do this? How does God get us all to bow? The answer to that question intersects with that student's excellent question some years ago of when is God going to do something? Our answer to how God gets us all to bow and our answer to when is God going to do something comes in the form of this Christ hymn that Paul shares with us today about the person and work of Jesus, whom Paul describes in verse 6, being in very nature God, no doubt about the divinity of Christ there, he is God. That's an early text attesting to God's divinity, who, who to Christ's divinity as God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is the how God gets us to bow. There's scholarly consensus that this section is actually a type of hymn that Paul was quoting, perhaps as one scholar said, from an early church celebration of the Lord's Supper, what they sang as they took communion. So you want to know what God has done? You want to answer that student's question? When is God going to do something? You want to know how God gets us all to bow? Don't look in some strategy book. I mean, I read those books. They're helpful. They can be good. But our biblical core... God's modus operandi doesn't start with a strategy. It starts with a liturgy, a hymn. Worship. It starts with worship. It's our Christ hymn. And as I heard one leader put it, worship leads to mission and mission leads us back to worship in the church. When we worship, which is what our Christ hymn is doing here, we're set straight about who God is and what God has actually done. And by the way, that's what the Old Testament tells Israel to do again and again. The Israelites are to remember what God has done and then remember and then remember again and then remember again and again and again. And a lot of times we just forget to remember and that's our struggle as church. Here's the thing. Here's why we need to remember because it's so counterintuitive the way God rolls here. God's way of doing stuff is so contrary to the natural human response. So we need continual, regular reinforcement of God's way. Otherwise, we're going to unconsciously slip into our way. I heard a Navy SEAL say one time that we train harder than we fight in the SEALs. They train and train and train. They develop muscle memory so that when they're in the fight, their best training comes as a natural response when they're in the battle zone. That's what liturgy is. That's what worship is. That's where our spiritual muscle memory comes from, our responsiveness. We need it. Because when we look at these three verses in 6, 7, and 8, they run counter to our natural response. Here's what I mean. Verse 6, describing Jesus, Paul says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So here we get a curious thing. Jesus, we're told, has power. 
He has a divine nature, and yet he doesn't leverage that power to get the job done. The God who was all-powerful becomes human, relinquishes that status. That is what, what is one scholar said, the glory that was native to him, right? He let it go. So when our mission as a church is shaped by this, we'll remember that our power doesn't depend on us looking powerful. When our success in mission as a church becomes about how powerful we look, we've lost the plot. We're called to salt the earth, not stick our heads in the sand, right? But we don't always need to look powerful to be powerful in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate power player. He could have engaged in mission that way. He could have body slammed Pilate when he was confronting them that day. But he doesn't do that. Precisely because he knew he was the son of God. He knew who he was. That's why he could stand before Pilate as such a cool customer. He didn't have to play any of those power games. Our trust is not in our looking powerful. Our trust is in Jesus whose power, St. Paul says, is made perfect in weakness. God gets us to bow, ultimately, from the beginning of this Christ hymn to the end. He gets us to bow by relinquishing his power and status. Our worship of Christ in our hymn text will shape us to not rely on our ability to leverage power, but rather to rely on Jesus Christ. Which is not to say, it's not to say God won't put us in positions of power, but the power is in the Lord who uses our our positions, not in the power itself. It's tempting to lose perspective here because power itself and influence can be intoxicating. Was Chuck Colson, the great Christian writer who worked in a presidential administration. See, he was asked one time, what's the key to not getting corrupted by politics? He said, don't stay in too long. We need to keep singing and singing this Christ hymn. Otherwise, we're going to fall into relying on earthly power mechanisms rather than relying on Jesus Christ to get our way. The journalist uses words. The engineer uses plans. The banker uses uses dollars. The teacher uses knowledge. The doctor uses medicine. Those are tools of earthly power. But when we follow Christ into those places, into those roles... We're always humming this tune, right? And we don't grip these earthly powers as if they're really the most important. We grip the hand of Jesus as we skip through the bank office or work through the school hallways or go to that next appointment with our next patient. We grip the hand of Jesus and remember he gave up his power. He didn't rely on it to save He trusted. He poured himself out. So we don't rely on our ability to leverage power to get our way in the culture. We use it, but we leave it before the hands of Jesus. Who, Paul says, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Mission shaped by our servant Lord 
is a ministry of sacrificial presence. This is less about the shouting matches between pundits on TV and more about the quiet conversations on the side. This is less the big speech at the school board meeting and more the respectful shaking hands with the board member after a contentious debate and then maybe going and fixing his porch or giving a babysitting time to her kids. Ministry shaped by our Christ hymn will not only trust Jesus more than our ability to leverage power, it will also be a sacrificial presence. This is the journalist who shares the byline, sacrifices the glory of the byline, the engineer who shares a great idea, the banker who shares an investment plan, even though they don't make as much, the doctor who gives extra time to that patient, all not to make names for themselves, but to serve. Our worship of Christ and our hymn text will shape us to be a sacrificial presence in the world. When we serve others and all we do, we counter our own tendency to put ourselves at the center. And we do that by serving others on behalf of God. If you want to get yourself out of the way, serve others on behalf of God. Jesus takes that all the way to verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God's way will sometimes feel invigorating, thrilling even. And sometimes God's way will feel like a dying, like taking up a cross, maybe even like losing. Jesus obeyed our Heavenly Father onto a path that really did involve losing, losing his life. I had this philosophy professor in college. I took a summer philosophy course one time, and this guy said stuff like, well, I could have died on the cross too if I had known I was going to rise from the dead. Okay. I just don't think he really read the Gospels very faithfully because the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels is not some guy who rose in some magic carpet ride through his suffering. You know, this is God plunging into the depths of human suffering. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he did not shout, winning! He recited a song, which ends in worship, but the song begins by articulating a sense of abandonment. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Obedience hurt for Jesus. It was humiliating. It killed him. And yet we're surprised when people criticize us. In the next chapter, we will write about the, we will, Paul will write and we will read about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Our faith, our Christianity shows up, especially when we're suffering, when we're losing. I was talking with one of our elders today. He was saying he heard a professor, a Christian, uh, Christian theology mission professor say that something to the effect of one of the biggest crises of the West and I think of Christianity is that we've forgotten how to lose. Our Christianity, our faith really shows up when we lose. When we lose a debate, when the ruling doesn't go our way, 
When our team doesn't win. When we worship Christ in our hymn text here, the text will shape us not to be winners, but to be obeyers, come what may, whether we win or not, even unto death. Well, does this sound like the evangelical Christian church right now? Not consumed by a need for power to get its way, not leveraging Power or relying on its leveraging of power to get its agenda, serving the world sacrificially, being obedient to God even when we lose. Does that sound like the evangelical Christian church right now? Is this text really shaping the discourse about Christianity and culture right now? Well, I leave that to you to ponder. Look, it's hard in a hostile world. The Philippians faced a hostile world. And it's clear that this is the case right in the previous chapter where Paul says, you are going through some of the same, you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And scholar Frank Thielman describes this experience of Paul in Philippi. He says, storm clouds gathered over Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi. The apostle angered the owners of a slave girl by exercising her of a demon. And that enabled her to, the demon had enabled her to earn a great deal of money for them. So they didn't like when he cast the demon out. He enraged slave owners and they dragged Paul and Silas before the city magistrates and charged them with being Jews and creating a stir by advocating customs unlawful. At the magistrate's orders, Paul and Silas were stripped, beaten, thrown in prison, despite the conversion of the jailer and an apology to Paul from the magistrates. The persecution of the young church in Philippi continues. And the struggle continues even now. How does Paul respond? He gives them a hymn. And this is a hymn we've got to keep singing. We've got to keep training. We've got to keep our spiritual muscle memory. We've got to hum this song in our journalism, in our teaching, in our ministry, in our corporate life, in our family life, in our neighborhood life. Because we will be tempted everywhere, and we are tempted everywhere. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I think the church is is falling into temptation to respond to the world's attacks with similar worldly attacks and response. But lives united to Jesus don't live that way. That is not the hymn. That is not a hymn that avoids leveraging power and trusting our leveraging power to get our way. That is not the hymn that serves and sacrifices. That is not a hymn that's obedient unto death. That's some other song. But we got to keep singing this one. You've heard me say time and time again, we're called to be salt of the earth, not to assault the earth. And it starts here. It starts at home. Paul knows that. That's why he's calling these Philippians to live the gospel to each other. There's a writer, Rod Dreher. I've heard him speak. He's published a book. I haven't read the book. But the the thesis of it is, it's called the Benedict Option. And from what I understand, Dreher kind of says, look, we've lost the culture wars. Let's just focus on cleaning house and becoming more authentic Christians ourselves and, and work on our own issues. Now, I think he probably overdoes that thesis like a lot of people do um, because I don't think we're called to just be internal. We're called to be salt of the earth, right? 
But he's got a point there in that salt in the earth, to do it, we got to stay salty, so to speak. And we got to work on ourselves first. So this is what Paul does do here. Paul is a missionary, but he also says, look, do nothing out of selfish ambition or being conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, so he is focusing them, in, focusing them internally. The gospel starts here. If you want to become a Christian, join a church. The, joining a church will make a Christian out of you <laughs> because it'll force it, right? Scholar Ralph Martin points out that the literal translation of this is, let this mind be among you as also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be among you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Well, thank God we don't have to conjure that because the text begins with, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, and the Greek for the sharing is one of my, probably my favorite Greek word, koinonia. If you have koinonia, if you have community with the spirit, through which we're united to Christ, then you can do this. Then you can sing and live this hymn. We have to ask ourselves, what are we singing? What songs are shaping us right now? And there's a lot of music out there. There are a lot of angry voices, not just singing, but shouting in our culture. And some of the anger is justified. Some of it's even necessary, but it is not sufficient Unto transformation and gospel proclamation, anger, coercion, and fury is not the path God chooses toward getting the world to bow to him. That is not the gospel. And we are ever tempted to follow a false gospel of seizing power to get our way, of being self-centered, it's all about us. And of being surprised when we face resistance to all of this. When that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is articulating here. But this is the road less traveled these days, it seems. God help us. And God does. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have access to the one who lived out this hymn from start to finish. He lives in our hearts. Boy, do we need him to keep us on track. Who are you listening to? What do you have to turn down or listen to less and to turn up and tune in more? Stay in the spirit. Take the road less traveled. Sing this hymn. God is with us. May it be so for you and for me. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.